My name is Nelson Jenkins. I'm the youth pastor here at Hope, and it's great to be here. Matt kind of laid out the whole like half truths series that he was going to be preaching on, and I got a chance to kind of look at him. And I looked at him and I said, "Oh, love the sin or hate the sin." I wonder how Matt's going to handle that one. Well, I found out. So here I am. So that was very nice of him. It's nice when you're the king and you can do that kind of stuff. So. Um, but we've heard some of these, Matt's been kind of sharing some of these half-truths, and some of these things, these phrases that we grew up with that we realize now maybe weren't totally true or not true at all, like the whole, how many here grew up, you can't swim for an hour after you eat, come on, raise your hands, it was a lie, I just found out, it was on the internet, it was a lie, it's not true, and so that whole time that you're sitting there counting down, like eight, seven, six, so you can jump in the water and not die, you didn't have to wait that long. So, and then um, I had an uncle when I, I grew up in in the Boston area, and I had an uncle out there that they we had he had they had five boys my around my age. So you can just picture six kids like me. I have ADHDQD. I have alphabet soup like that, and and they all did. We were all like it was we were squirrels. We were squirrels. But my uncle was like he was this guy that. The only, I didn't ever remember him sober. He was always drunk. But, I mean, it was, you know, it's just, I just didn't know any different till one time I actually went to his house and he was kind of sober and I didn't recognize him. And it was kind of like, uh, Janet, who's that guy sitting over there? So, but I was allergic to poison ivy when I was a kid. And man, I'm telling you, that's a pain. I would sit there and I would look at a plant from like 100 yards away and all of a sudden I'd get it. It was just, that was the way it was. So my Uncle Jim said, I know how to fix that. This was not one of his sober moments. He says, you eat a poison ivy plant, and it'll make it to where you don't get poison ivy ever again. I'm like six years old. So I'm sitting there going, wow, that just seems like if it'll get me rid of poison ivy. Well, yeah, it works because you die. So you're not going to get poison ivy anymore. Congratulations, you're healed. But it was just kind of that, those things that you hear growing up, and he's like, that only took one time. Like the swimming thing, I, you know, <clears throat> until last week, I found out that, I, you know, I still couldn't do that. But the poison ivy thing, it only took one time to realize I'm not doing that again. But when we think of some of these phrases in, that we've been looking at, we're, t- we're talking about today, love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard that phrase growing up, I was like, yeah, that I, I'm totally... I'm, I'm with that. And I talked to a lot of people when I was talking about pre- preparing for the sermon, and they're like, yeah, I agree with that. And I say, like, well, then don't show up Sunday because you're going to be really confused. So, But the whole idea of love the sinner, hate the sin, it's one of those phrases that you listen to it and you're like, that makes total sense. Love the sinner. Of course we're supposed to love the sinner. Hate the sin. We're supposed to hate sin. The interesting thing is, is that a lot of times what happens is we try to separate sin from the sinner. We try to say, we're good people that sometimes do bad things. And that's where we can get in trouble. Because the Bible says that we're sinners. It doesn't say you're good people that do bad things. It says that we're sinners. And we get caught up in that. And so this morning, we want to kind of look at the whole idea of what is sin? <clears throat> and what is, what is it that love the sinner, hate the sin really means? And the interesting thing is it's not in the Bible. You guys realize that love the sinner, hate the sin isn't a phrase in the Bible? It actually came from Gandhi. So every time you go around saying that, you're really just kind of quoting Gandhi. 
Um, back in 1929 in his autobiography, that's the phrase he used. And we've caught that and we've grabbed it and we've run with it, that it's a Bible phrase. And, and I'm not saying this morning that love the sin or hate the sin is a bad thing. What I'm saying is that we've got to be careful when we say that, because we're, as we're going to look at this morning, there, there are times when we can get mixed up if we're not careful with our, where our mindset is. And the first thing we've got to understand is, what is sin? In the Old Testament, the word for sin was separation. We are separated from God because of sin, from Adam and Eve. At that point of their sin, when they messed up, they were separated from God. They didn't have that relationship with God anymore. And then you go to the New Testament, and sin is literally an archery term, which means missing the mark. It means there's a target set up, you shoot the arrow, and you miss it. And that's what, that's what the New Testament talks about sin, is, is that God has set up a target called perfection. And if we don't hit that, we've sinned. Any sinners in the room? All right. All right. That's all right. So good. I'm, I'm talking to you and me together here. When I was um, finishing up my college, I did a year internship at a camp, Camp Four Springs up in um, Wisconsin. And I was going to be a lifeguard. And so I went through all the training and I went through everything. And I had this coach who was helping me. He was basically the guy who would just yell at me and call me names if I, when I was swimming if I didn't keep going. And so I'm glad he was there, even though I hated him, because he kept me going. So I got it to where I was certified and I was licensed to be a lifeguard. So I get to the camp and they said, all right, you're going to be teaching archery. And I was like, I don't even know what a bow and arrow looked like unless it was a movie I watched when I was a kid. And I never shot an arrow and a bow. But I tell you what, if somebody if there's a pond around there and somebody's drowning, I'll get them. I'll, I'll save them, but I'm not going to be able to do much. And they said, well, you've got two weeks to learn. So they give me a bow. It's not stringed. And they said, all right. And it's a, one of those re- Anyone know about some of you? I mean, we're in Dubuque. People know about, like, get a recurve bow. Okay, and so you're supposed to take this bow that's as tall as I am, and you're supposed to bend it. And, and basically, it's not supposed to snap as you bend it over and you put the string on. And, and so I'm learning how to do all this. And I'm out there, and they've got targets that are 25, 50, and 100 yards out. So I'm looking at the 25, and I was like, my goal is this is big hay bale that the target's on. So my goal for the first two days was hit the hay bale. Just hit the hay bale. If I start with seven arrows, come back with seven arrows. I mean, and then I, I feel like I, I succeeded. So I went on, and I got to where I was pretty good at the 25, then I got to the 50. And I finally got to where I could, I could hit the target. And then I, I looked out at the 100, and I just laughed. And I, I just said, you know what, it's one of those things where you just shoot it up in the air and just hope that it comes down, you know, somewhere near the target. So I get out there, and the kids are like, all right, teach us archery. I was like, all right, what we're going to do is, because I don't want to show up, we're going to just stay on the 25 target. I don't, want, I don't want you guys to get embarrassed because you see me and think that you can do that. So we're just shooting at the 25s, and I'm hitting the hay bale. And they're like, well, at least he's hitting the hay bale. So, but when I'm looking at that, I realized I sinned. A lot during that time because I missed the mark a whole lot more than I hit it. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about sin is sin is missing the mark. There's a mark that God has set up. He said, I want you to be perfect. To have a relationship with me, you need to be perfect. We're all in trouble. We're all in trouble because we know we're not. Even the best person in here knows that they've messed up. 
And so God says, because of that, I can't have that relationship that I want to have with you that started out with Adam and Eve back in Genesis. But he said, I want to restore that. I want to fix that. So he brought Christ, his son, who was perfect. He came down in perfect form and he lived the perfect life on this earth. He didn't miss the mark. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says that he died for our sin. For everything that we've done, that we're going to do, that we're doing now. Christ said, I'm taking all of that on myself. If you'll trust me, if you'll believe that I'm the only way that you can be made right with God, then that relationship is fixed. And I use that analogy here, and I use it with the teens, that if we come to that point of acknowledging that, what happens is God comes, Christ comes down. We say, Christ, I believe that you died on the cross for me. He comes down, and he wraps himself. Picture that. He wraps himself around me around you and he says you're mine and when God looks down God sees perfection we're not perfect we're going to continue to screw up but Christ is perfect and when God looks down he says that's mine that's my child because I see perfection and it's Christ's perfection wrapped around us that's the only way that we're made right with God so we've got to start with that premise of understanding what is sin Sin is not being perfect. So we're all sinners. According to the Bible, we're all sinners. So when we, when we look at that, we, when we look at love the sin or hate the sin, a lot of times the problem is, is that we put our focus on other sins. When I say love the sin or hate the sin, I'm looking at someone else. And I'm not looking at myself. And that's what I want us to kind of look at is where is our focus when it comes to this phrase, I'm not saying this phrase is evil and we should just throw it out. I'm saying, if we look at this phrase, we've got to be careful and we've got to look at it honestly. And we've got to look at ourselves honestly. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. And, and in those chair Bibles somewhere around you, hopefully, that'll be in page 738 in those Bibles. We want to look at, um, as we start out with love the sin or hate the sin, look at some, some verses that can kind of help us Understand this and flesh this out a little bit. Matthew 7, verse 1, is used to be John 3, 16 was the most quoted verse in the Bible. Matthew 7, is also, I think it's taken that over. Because when you hear this, you'll understand. Because a lot of people want to say this. People that are sitting there going, I probably know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't want anyone to tell me. See if this verse rings out. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you say, think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't judge or you'll be judged. I've heard that. People will throw that out. People that don't know the Bible and could care less about the Bible, at least know one verse in the Bible. You can't judge. But the problem is, when you only know one verse in the Bible, you don't know the context. You don't know what it's really saying. This verse is really saying, don't play God. The word judge in here is a condemning to hell. Don't try to be God and say, hey, you know what? Because you did that, you're going to hell. 
That's the kind of judging that, that they're talking about here. Is that whole idea of you're going to try to play, take God's role on yourself. And a lot of us want to be God. It started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And that's where the sin started. Today, it's no different. We want to be like God. We want to have control of our own lives. And when we hear that we can't, that God needs to be in control, we struggle with that. Because if we have to give up control, then all of a sudden we're not going to maybe know what's going on and what's, what's around the corner. But the Bible tells us that we're not supposed to be God. We're not supposed to put ourselves in a seat of judgment to sit there and say, you're condemned. But it also doesn't say that we're not supposed to judge. John 7:24 says, stop judging by mere appearance. But instead, judge correctly. So it's, it doesn't say don't judge. It says if you're going to judge, make sure you're judging correctly. And that's what I want us to look at. When we think of love the sin or hate the sin, a lot of times there's judgment involved in that. So we want to look at how do we judge correctly? Because too many people think the Bible says that we're not supposed to discern right from wrong, good and evil. We're not supposed to be able to tell the difference. We just... Just let people live how they want, and God will sort it out in the end. And we kind of do that with our own lives a lot of times. We don't want to have a line that where God says, this is right, that's wrong. We want to have a giant gray area that we can just kind of fall in. And so when we think about the whole idea of judgment, I want us to look at, first of all, there's two types of wrong judgments that I think we have. The first one is a hypocritical judgment. We've got a hypocritical judgment. Romans 12, I mean, Romans 2, 1 says, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we're going to look at about how we may sit there and think, I don't actually do what they did. But we're going to look in a second at what the Bible says about how we all are guilty of that. Even though it's going to make us uncomfortable. There was a young couple who moved into a new house. And they had an older couple that lived next door to them. And the young lady that just moved in would sit at the dining room table and look out the window. And the older lady would have her laundry out, hanging it out. And the young lady would look out and say, I don't know what kind of detergent she's using, but she ought to change it because that, those sheets are dirty. Next week, she gets up, sits down, same thing. And her husband's just sitting at the table, just kind of like, just let it go. Our sheets aren't that clean either. And so he's just sitting there shaking his head week after week. And then finally, one morning, she gets up and she sits down. And she looks out the window and she says, finally, she changed the detergent. Or maybe she's using detergent because the sheets are clean. And the husband said, honey, I got tired of this. And I, just woke, I got up early this morning and I went and cleaned our windows. <laughs> and that's... If we're honest, that's where the problem is. Is that we've got dirty windows and we're looking at other people saying, look how bad they are. Because we're looking through a log. And we're looking at a speck and we're saying, can't they get their act together? Can't they clean their sheets? And the whole time, it's, the issue is on our end. And so I want us to just think about, when we think about hypocritical judgment, are our windows clean when we're looking at other people? When we're, we're judging other people. And the second type of um, wrong judgment is self-righteous judgment. It's the whole idea of, of we put ourselves above someone else. The Bible throughout 
the New Testament talks about humility. It talks about the fact that we need to humble ourselves. And we're going we're gonna to look at this. But Jesus was harder on the Pharisees, the religious leaders that knew everything. When you look, when you look through all the scripture, he was pretty harsh on them. And sometimes he was harsher on them than he was on the quote-unquote sinners. And we'll look at that. <clears throat> but Jesus is calling us to a life of humility. In Philippians, it talks about the fact that Christ humbled himself and came down to earth as a man. He showed that. He modeled that for us. <clears throat> Proverbs 3.34 The Lord mocks the mocker, but is gracious to the humble. The Lord mocks the mocker, but is gracious to the humble. And then we go on in, in a Matthew, a few verses here after the judgment. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. It says, we got a log in our own eye, but we're worried about a speck in someone else's eye. And we go in and say, hey, let me get that speck out of your eye. But we can't see clearly past the log that's in our own eye. So we need to be careful with the love, the sin, or hate the sin, because we can sit there and think that, you know, we're doing good. When, when we, we do that. So some things that we got to be careful of with love the sin or hate the sin. Why we got to be careful of that is, first of all, we might have a wrong view of ourselves. We might have a wrong view of ourselves if we sit there and you try to use that phrase, love the sin or hate the sin. John 8, page 816 in your chair Bible there. John 8, 1 through 11. Some of us may knew, know this passage. But this is where we've got the religious leaders, the Pharisees. When you read about Pharisees in the New Testament, those are the religious leaders. Those are the ones in the know. They know everything that God teaches. They study it to the point where they want to make sure everyone else knows how much they know. They've got a lot of head knowledge. And so here they come up in in John 8. And it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer as he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So here are the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they're, they're not coming up. Most of the time when you see these, this group of people coming to Jesus with a question, they're not looking for an answer. They're looking for something they can trap Jesus in. And a lot of times they'll ask a question in a way that if he says yes, 50% of the group that's listening are, are going to be mad at him. If he says no, the other 50% are going to be mad. And so they're going, this is great because we're going to have half the crowd mad no matter how he answers. The problem is they're messing with God. And it's not that you know hard for Jesus to go, 
you're idiots. So I don't know. That's in the Greek. So, um, so, but when we think about it, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are sitting here accusing this woman. They're saying she's caught in adultery. I want to read Matthew 5, 27 and 28. It says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm going to go now. Because our minds, the, the, the interesting thing here is that these religious leaders are sitting there accusing this woman of an act that they've probably been guilty of over and over and over again. Because Jesus says, you're saying she was caught in the act of adultery. I'm saying daily or weekly, whatever it is, you're doing the same thing. You're just not blatantly coming out. You're kind of hiding it in your hearts, thinking you got away with it. So here are these religious leaders. And obviously, I wish the Bible would sit there and say, Jesus knelt down and this is what he wrote. A lot of people want to sit there and say, if somebody comes up and says, here's exactly what Jesus wrote when he knelt down at that point, ask them where they found that because I can't find that. And I would like to know. Maybe he's writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he's writing their names or whatever it is. But as soon as Jesus comes up and says, hey, if you've never sinned, take the first stone and let's get it started. All of a sudden, one by one, they start walking off. It's that self-righteous judgment that we kind of put ourselves about above someone else. They weren't interested in helping her because they believed that they were superior to her. They were looking through their dirty windows. And they're saying, look how dirty her laundry is. Pride is the thing that can get in our way. Pride is, to me, a lot of times the biggest log in a lot of people's eyes. Because you've got a lot of spiritual people who want you to know how spiritual they are. I want you to know how much I know. And I've got to make sure that I'm a step up above someone else. Which makes it hard when you're a pastor, and I'm not that bright sometimes. Some of you know me, and so you, you can not say amen, thank you. Um, but, you know, you go through and people just expect, well, they're a pastor, so they have to know the whole Bible inside and out. They've got to know the Greek and the Hebrew and, and Latin and all that stuff like that. I'll tell you this, I took Greek in seminary. I don't know a lot of Greek, but I passed. So we can just stop there. So, but it's this idea that pride, we get stuck in this thing of, of how much I know, and then all of a sudden it, it starts to build up to where we don't see people. The same way that God sees them. We see them in a way that we look down and we say, boy, if you only knew as much as I did, how much better off your life would be. And so we, we understand that, that the person with a beam in their eye, a lot of times the light of Scripture, is the one who seems to know it all. And they don't want to look at what's going on in their lives. I was a kid, my mother used to make me do the dishes. It was like the, the form back then of torture. And so she would say, I'm going out, do the dishes. And so she'd come back, and the dishes were done. Everything's put away. And, she, and we would sit at the, um, we'd, I'd, I'd stand at, at the sink, and there's a window right above it, and the sun would shine in. And she'd come home, and she'd pull out a glass from the cupboard, and she'd look at it. And it was clean. And then she'd take it and she'd put it up 
to the window so the sun could shine through. And you see all these spots because we didn't have cascade back then. So see all these spots in the glass. And she say, these aren't clean. So she wouldn't just take that glass and put it back in the sink. She would take all the dishes and put them back in the sink. So I had to do them all over again. To this day, I have not forgiven her for that. So, and she would keep doing that until I got it right. Because I would take the glass, I'd wash it, and I'd say, it looks good. And I'd put it away, and I'd go about my day. And it wasn't playing video games, because trust me, anyone who's near my age knows that our video games were, I don't know, baseball cards. So we didn't have that stuff. And so, but she, she'd come back, and she'd take it, and she'd shine it up, and she'd say, look how dirty that is. I wanted to sit there and just say, it looks good enough, put it away. The same way in our lives, we look at our lives and we say, I'm good enough. I'm not too bad. I'm not too dirty. And we put ourselves away and we kind of just go throughout our day. Well, God takes us out of the cupboard. And he shines us up to the light, which is Christ. And as Christ shines through our lives... What happens is God says, this is the mark you're supposed to hit. Perfection. And as Christ shines through, we see how, how short we, we come to that mark. And we realize that we try to hide ourselves and put us into, into the cupboard and, and be done with it. But as soon as that light shined through, we realized how bad we really are. And so that's what God is calling us to. He's saying, I want you to put yourself up to the light to see how you really are, not how you try to pretend you are. Because once you do that, then we're going to start to look at others differently. Because we a lot of times we'll judge others harder than we judge ourselves. It's like when you go to the grocery store. You, you know this is true. You go to the grocery store and the next aisle over, you can't see them, but the kids are just screaming and the mother's like, quiet down. And you're just like, that is like so annoying. All right. And then you turn the corner and you see your wife and your kids and you just kind of say, all right, you know, it's not that annoying anymore. All of a sudden, the judgment changes when you realize, dude, my kids aren't perfect anymore. It's like the day they're born. So, but we look at them and we always want to judge others, set them to a standard that we're not willing to set ourselves to. So when we say love the sin or hate the sin, we've got to be careful with that. Another, another reason that it, it could be dangerous is we might not be interested in helping or loving them. We might think that we're helping them when really we're not. We're, at, we're really, in a, in a sense, hurting them because of the way that we go about it. I've shared this story before, but um, I only have like three stories in my arsenal, so you've got to deal with it again. But Stephanie, when she was like probably seven or eight, nine, ten, she was young, um, she was playing goalie. And she was at the, the biggest church in Dubuque, over at the Dubuque soccer fields. And she was playing goalie, and every time she got the ball, she would just kick it right to the middle of the field where the, where the other team was, and they'd kick it back. And I was like, ugh. I, I, I played all the sports, but soccer was one that I just tolerated. And, but I was like, I know enough to know that you don't want to kick the ball to the enemy. Yeah, you want, you don't want them to kick the ball back to you. So when the ball was finally on the other side of the field, I, I, I said, Stephanie, come here, come here. And she made this mistake of coming over. And I said, Stephanie, you've got to kick the ball to the side. To my horror, the other team was faster than I thought. And they came back and they scored as I'm sitting there talking to the goalie. And I thought I was helping her. 
I was like, well, I'm encouraging her. I, and the, what I was giving her was good advice. Wrong timing. All right. Maybe tell her after the game. Don't tell her in the middle of the game. So now every time we'll joke around about it, I'll say, Stephanie, you want me to help you? No, Dad. No. On anything. You know, even last night eating candy. Stephanie, you want to? No. So, so, but we think that we're helping, but we end up really hurting if we sit there and say, love the sinner, hate the sin, and, and we come at it from a, a prideful way. Galatians 6.1 tells us, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So the Bible tells us, if we want to sit there and say Matthew 7 says we can't judge and we can't discern right from wrong, you can't line that up with the rest of Scripture when it says if you see your brother overcome by sin... Gently and humbly help that person. How do you help that person if you don't help them address what's going on? But it says to do it humbly. And it says to be careful that we don't get caught up in the same sin. So and the third thing that we look at when we say um, love the sinner, hate the sin, is that we might be focusing on others and not on God. Our focus might be on others and not on God. We're going to finish up with Luke 18. It's, in, it's on page 18. 18. 800. It's got an 8 in it. So, page 800, um, Luke 18, we want to look at how we could possibly, with the love the sinner, hate the sin, we could be focusing on the wrong thing, if we're not careful. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. When Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and, pr- and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, the sinner and not the Pharisee returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We get caught up in this idea that I'm spiritual depending on how better I am than someone else. And we get caught up in that that idea that the standard we set is how bad are they compared to how good am I? And we get our focus on them and not on God. And our windows are dirty. And we're not willing to clean them. We're not willing to address that. And so we all, we're always going to look. And so you've got this religious leader and you've got the, the man who works for the IRS. All right? So th- some things haven't changed. All right? The tax collector was despised in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Still, they're still despised today. I'm sorry if you work for the IRS. Um, get a new job. Okay. Um, so... On that point. So, um, but we look at it and we say, I'm looking at that person and I'm thinking, I'm okay. I don't do what they do. And that's what this Pharisee is laying out. Look at all the things I do. I'm not like that person. I mean, I give, tenth, I give a tenth of everything that I make. And he goes, I don't cheat. I don't sin. Liar. I don't commit adultery. He goes through all this stuff. And, and so he's saying, God, you should be pleased with me. And then the tax collector comes up and he says, God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. 
And it says, that's the man who is justified. Justified literally means to be made right with God. If you want an easy way to remember this, justified never sinned. Justified never sinned. So um, that's just an easy way to remember it. I learned that in Greek class. Um, so when we, we think about it, the person who was made right in God's eyes was the one who came out and said, I'm a sinner. I need you, God. Not the one who thought they had it all together. Because as we close up here, the problem is the focus. I want us to think for, for a second that this wall is God. This is the sinner that we look at and we say, I'm not like them. And so we look at our, our focus is here. And we sit there and say, look how bad they are. I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty spiritual. The problem is, as this person moves away from God, and we keep our focus on them, we keep that distance so we're pretty spiritual. And this person keeps walking away from God. Guess what? Pretty soon we're even more spiritual because we've really made that distance between them. And we sit there and go, I am so much better. God's got to be totally pleased with me. Till unfortunately, this person's way over here. And we're keeping that distance. We're even making that distance wider. Until God finally says, do an about face. And we turn around. And we say, we've come so far from God. Because our focus is on love the sinner, hate the sin, then I'm going to look at their sin and I'm going to judge how I'm doing by how bad they are. And what ends up happening is we keep getting further and further away from God until one day he just tells us to turn around and, and realize when you focus on God, we've got a long way to go. When that sun shines through our lives and we see the dirt in our lives, do we just put it back in the, in the cupboard and ignore it? Or do we sit there and say, it's time to start cleaning up? Instead of saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, maybe we should say, love the sinner, hate my sin. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us as sinners. We've totally missed the mark. We know that each day we miss the mark by the things that we do, the things that we think, and, the, and just everything in our lives. We know that we're not perfect, but we know, Lord, that you are. And Jesus, we thank you that because of your perfection, we can be made right in God's eyes. But that's the only way. There's nothing that we can do to make us right. It's only by what you've already done. I pray as that sun shines through our lives, Lord, you help us to be honest and to clean our own windows and to love the sinner and to hate my sin. In Jesus' name, amen.